Greetings, and welcome to Hope and Heart and Home on the Range. This is L.J. Ranke, and I'd like to invite you to enjoy with me this simple fact of life. North Dakota and these wide northern plains east of the Rockies and west of the Great Lakes really is and really are a good place to call home. A place with plenty of heart, a place where hope sometimes takes you by surprise. Today I'm going to tell you about a surprise Lena got after that old box of books from the library in St. Paul got delivered to the James Memorial Library in Williston. On the social commentary portion of the program, we're going to take a time out on football. There's more to say about the NFL protest, but not today. Instead, we're going to spend some extra time with history. We're going to revisit Lewis and Clark, but instead of talking about the expedition, I want to share a discovery about something from their personal lives that touches our world today, which took me completely by surprise. To explain this after the expedition connection, I want to share some of their personal before-the-expedition history about three of the main players, Thomas Jefferson, Meriwether Lewis, and William Clark. It's a lot of information, but I find it fascinating. I hope you'll find it meaningful. First, about President Thomas Jefferson. Long before becoming president, Jefferson had tried repeatedly to fund expeditions, some with private funding and some with government funding, to explore the land between the Mississippi and the Pacific. Jefferson's earliest known inquiry about sending an exploratory expedition to the Pacific was in 1783, before the Revolutionary War was even over. Jefferson was newly elected to Congress and had heard that England was raising money, even as it was preparing to recognize America's independence, to send British explorers into those lands between the Mississippi and the Pacific, possibly to claim other parts of North America for England. The first person Jefferson asked about leading an American expedition to the West was someone who had become something of a hero in the Revolutionary War, with whom Jefferson had an ongoing correspondence. That man had led the effort to capture several British forts in the Western Kentucky Territory, present-day Indiana and Illinois, in some instances without firing a shot. He had first-hand knowledge of the Indian tribes in that region. The man, who declined Jefferson's informal request due to personal financial obligations, was George Rogers Clark, none other than the older brother of William Clark, of later Lewis and Clark fame. Some years later, remembering Jefferson's ongoing interest, George Rogers actually wrote in a letter to Jefferson that his younger brother William, 18 years his junior, would be capable of leading such a venture. Little did he know. In 1884, the year after Jefferson had proposed the idea to George Rogers Clark, Jefferson became the minister or ambassador to France, which meant moving to France, which prompted a rather unorthodox attempt to secure American exploration of those lands that he wanted to see explored. By the way, while Jefferson was in France, he entrusted the management of his lands and estate at Monticello to his longtime friend and ally, Nicholas Lewis, who, it turns out, was the uncle of Meriwether Lewis. More on Jefferson's Lewis family connections later. While in France, Jefferson coordinated with friends to fund an unusual proposal. An independent American explorer, John Ledyard, who had sailed around the world with famed British explorer James Cook, but who was also known to have an unpredictable and an explosive personality, agreed to come to Europe, travel east through Russia and Siberia, then secure passage, probably on a Russian ship, to cross the Bering Sea into Alaska, then travel south to the Pacific Northwest and explore those unexplored North American lands in the West by starting on the West Coast and working his way eastward all the way to Virginia. Ledyard came to London, then launched his venture from St. Petersburg, Russia in June 1787. He traveled across Russia and got as far as eastern Siberia, where he wintered. He was able to connect with a former Cook sailing companion who was British but employed by the Russian government as a ship captain. The Russians who met Ledyard began to distrust him and feared his possible interference with their fur trade. 
They turned him over to the Russian authorities, who arrested him and escorted him back to Poland. Life went from bad to worse for Mr. Ledyard. A year later, sponsored by a British group, he made plans to explore the heart of Africa, traveling from the Red Sea through the jungles to the Atlantic. Very near the outset of his African trek, Ledyard accidentally poisoned himself. He died and was buried in a now-forgotten grave on the banks of the Nile. The last letter he ever wrote, by the way, just before he died, was to his friend, Thomas Jefferson. In 1801, Jefferson, who had served as a governor of Virginia, as a congressman from Virginia, as an ambassador to France, as the first U.S. Secretary of State, and as vice president, became president. Two years later, in January 1803, he secretly asked Congress to set aside funds for a government-sponsored expedition to the Pacific Ocean. Congress agreed to fund the secret request. The request and the funding were kept secret because the U.S. did not have territorial claims over lands west of the Mississippi. Others did. Those lands had once been claimed by Spain, then ceded to France in an earlier treaty. However, in April 1803, three months after Jefferson secretly secured expedition funding, France surprised the United States with an offer. Napoleon Bonaparte's plan to expand France's global empire into North America was unraveling. Napoleon was facing a possible war with Britain. Worse, France's recent attempt to restore control over one of its island colonies in the Caribbean had resulted in a horrible loss of French soldiers' lives, due both to war and to disease. It became clear that France could not sustain any large North American outpost. To finance his pending war, and to keep France's North American territories from falling back into Spanish hands, Napoleon let his dream of global empire fade and decided to sell France's territories to the United States, from New Orleans to Canada to the Rocky Mountains, for $15 million. That transaction, known as the Louisiana Purchase, meant that Jefferson's initially secret plan to fund an expedition could become public. His dream was becoming a reality. And now let me tell you a little about William Clark. You met his older brother, George Rogers Clark, a few minutes ago, who had ongoing correspondence with Jefferson and who recommended his brother William for such a trip. However, Jefferson never made such an overture to the younger Clark. That would come another way. William Clark was born in Virginia and was only six years old when the Declaration of Independence was signed. All five of William's older brothers, including George Rogers, were old enough to enlist and fought in the Revolutionary War. William, of course, was too young. When William was 15, his family moved from Virginia to Kentucky. At age 19, William Clark followed his older brother's footsteps and joined the Kentucky militia. Soon after, he joined the U.S. Army. When Clark was 22, President George Washington commissioned him as a lieutenant. Clark served in the Western territories of the U.S., which included numerous battles with Indian tribes, largely to secure frontier land grants to former American soldiers. William Clark was a remarkable cartographer or map maker. As an aside, let me tell you, I was stunned, no exaggeration, this past 4th of July, when our family visited the reconstructed Fort Mandan, Lewis and Clark's triangular-shaped fort that served as their winter quarters on the Missouri River, where Sacagawea gave birth to Pompeii. Fort Mandan has on hand the life-sized copies of Clark's maps of the Missouri River from the expedition's travels. His traverse maps, which record their day-to-day progress on the map itself, are amazing. They're beautifully drawn with astounding detail. I cannot imagine how he gave such a detailed rendition of the Missouri and its surrounding geography while enduring the difficult living conditions of the expedition. Do yourself a favor and visit Fort Mandan and the nearby Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center in Washburn. And when you do, head 20 miles west to see the Knife River Indian Village historic site, where Sacagawea lived among the Hidatsa, just north of Stanton, North Dakota. If you're from North Dakota, it's an easy one-day outing. If you're not from North Dakota, well, you've been wanting to visit your whole life, so here's your reason you won't regret it. 
back to Clark's history. After serving seven years in the military at age 26, Lieutenant William Clark left the Army and went back to Kentucky to care for his parents and their estate. He actually tried to address some of the debts of his older brother, George Roberts, whose life took a number of sad turns. But seven years after leaving the Army, during which time his parents had both died, in June 1803, William received a letter from his former Army companion, whom he had once commanded, and that letter changed everything. And that brings us to Meriwether Lewis. We'll look at Meriwether Lewis and his life, and the connection between our world and the personal lives of Lewis and Clark, when we come back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. And now we're looking at Meriwether Lewis. Meriwether Lewis was born in 1774, which makes him four years younger than William Clark. The family home where he was born was near Charlottesville, Virginia, perhaps 10 miles from Thomas Jefferson's plantation, Monticello. The extended Lewis family and his mother's family, the Meriwethers, for whom Lewis was named, was well known in the county and, more importantly, were known to Thomas Jefferson. Some of Jefferson's sisters married into the extended Lewis family, Jefferson actually purchased hams from Meriwether's mother, Lucy. When Meriwether was about five years old, his father died and his mother remarried. Initially, they stayed in Virginia, but when Meriwether was 10, his stepfather moved the Lewis family from Virginia to Georgia. This was the same time that Jefferson left for France as minister to France, which brings to light a notable Jefferson-Lewis connection. While in France, Jefferson's friend and associate, Nicholas Lewis, who was Meriwether's uncle, managed affairs at Monticello in Jefferson's absence. After a relatively short time in Georgia, Meriwether was sent back to Virginia so his uncle Nicholas could supervise his education with tutors, there being no public schools at that time. Eventually, Meriwether enrolled in the Virginia College, later to be known as Washington and Lee, and graduated at age 19. At age 20, Meriwether Lewis joined the Virginia militia and a year later enlisted in the U.S. Army. Lewis served two years in the western U.S. territories and for at least a portion of that time served under Lieutenant William Clark with whom he developed a friendship and for whom he gained deep respect. While Clark left the Army the year after Lewis joined, Lewis remained in the military and eventually achieved the rank of captain. Five years after Clark said farewell to Lewis and the Army life in 1801, newly elected President Jefferson realized he needed a personal secretary. He wrote the commander of the U.S. Army and said that while he did not know the whereabouts of Captain Meriwether Lewis, he wanted him located in order to be commissioned as Jefferson's personal secretary, a position which Lewis gladly accepted. Two years later, in 1803, when Jefferson got his initial westward expedition funding from Congress and when France unexpectedly sold its territories to the United States, Jefferson gave this hand-selected personal secretary, Captain Lewis, a new assignment. He was to lead the American expedition to the West. It would be a military operation and would function under military protocol. As its captain, Lewis was to find someone else to help him lead it. Lewis's first choice was William Clark, who had left the military seven years earlier and whom he now outranked. Clark was thrilled to accept the invitation. Lewis asked the Army to promote Clark from lieutenant to captain. The Army refused, so Lewis simply bestowed the title captain on Clark so that both men would be on equal footing as expedition leaders. The members of the expedition, therefore, believed Lewis and Clark shared the same military rank when, in fact, they did not. Now, that's some before-the-expedition history but there's also some after-the-expedition history to tell as well. When Lewis and Clark returned to St. Louis from their expedition in 1806, President Jefferson appointed Lewis to be governor of what was then called the Louisiana Territory, which would eventually become the state of Missouri. 
When Clark got back, he made a beeline to Virginia to court Julia Hancock, whose hand he had sought before the expedition. She was 21 years younger than Clark, an age difference which was not so unusual among the gentry of that era. Before Clark was yet married, President Jefferson appointed Clark to be the Brigadier General of the Louisiana Territory Militia, an appointment which applied to the Territory Militia but which did not change his rank in the U.S. Army. Their respective appointments meant that both Lewis and Clark lived and served in St. Louis. William Clark married Julia in early 1808, and in early 1809, their first child was born in St. Louis, a son whom they named Meriwether Lewis Clark. Sadly, nine months after Meriwether Lewis Clark was born, the man for whom he was named, Meriwether Lewis, died. There's some dispute about Lewis's strengths and weaknesses as a governor, but it is the case that his lieutenant governor sought to undermine him in any way that he could. It is also the case that the U.S. government did not cover some of the expenses owed Lewis, leaving him at the mercy of some demanding creditors. On his way to Washington, D.C. to try to clear his name and to secure reimbursement at an inn on the Natchez Trail in rural Tennessee, about 70 miles southwest of Nashville, Meriwether Lewis was either murdered or committed suicide, a topic of intense scrutiny by historians. Both Jefferson and Clark believed that it was suicide, but I have to tell you, the jury is still out. Meriwether Lewis Clark, William Clark's son, grew up in St. Louis, joined the Army, and while on assignment near Louisville, Kentucky, met Abigail Prather Churchill, the daughter of a prominent Louisville family. Her younger brother, in fact, eventually became governor of Arkansas. After Meriwether Lewis Clark left the Army, he married Abigail and they returned to St. Louis. They had seven children. One of their sons they named Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr., who was six years old when his mother died. By the way, when the Civil War erupted, Meriwether Lewis Clark, a 52-year-old widower, served as an officer in the Confederate Army. But that's another story. Because Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr., William Clark's grandson, was only six years old when his mother died, he was sent to live with a Churchill aunt and cousins in Louisville. His mother's family being who they were, young Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr. grew up very much a part of Louisville society. After a trip to England and France, where he witnessed premier European sporting events, he came back to Louisville and saw immense possibility in developing horse racing. With support from his mother's side of the family, the Churchills, he built Churchill Downs. And on that racetrack that bears his mother's family name, in 1875, Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr. organized, as you have probably now guessed, the first Kentucky Derby, the Run for the Roses, which holds the status of being the longest-running continuous sporting event in American history. And so, ladies and gentlemen, the grandson of the explorer, William Clark, who bears the name, as did his father, of his grandfather's dear friend and fellow explorer, Meriwether Lewis, created an event that has become an American tradition— it's a connection that flows not from their travels, but from their personal lives and from the friendships that they shared. Oh, and let me add this postscript. In 2001, 197 years after Lewis and Clark left on their trek, and 163 years after William Clark died, the President of the United States, President Bill Clinton, posthumously elevated Clark to the rank of Captain. Lieutenant William Clark is now officially Captain William Clark. When we come back, I'll tell you about the box of books that finally got delivered to the Williston Library.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Last week, I told you about Lena being reminded of the box of books her sister had sent back for the James and Memorial Library in Williston when Li Na, her Chinese house guest, had seen a mouse in Lena's basement. The day after the mouse was discovered, that box of books was sitting on the floor by the kitchen door where Lena had left them after bringing them up from the basement. It was a beautiful spring morning, a Saturday. Oli was out in the garden, setting up strings to plant some potatoes. The box of books was not terribly heavy, but carrying it six blocks to the library would be a bit much. Lena opened the kitchen door and walked around to the storage shed lean-to Oli had built years earlier on the back of the garage. Hanging on the wall of the shed by its handle on a hook was the old radio flyer wagon. Looking at it, Lena could tell that winter was officially over. The wagon and all the equipment and tools in the lean-to had been wiped of whatever dust and grime they'd collected over the winter. Lena lifted the wagon from the wall, lowered it to the ground, and pulled it to the steps by the kitchen door. She stepped into the kitchen to grab the box of books and put them in the wagon. Just then, the telephone rang. Lena rushed inside to answer the phone on the kitchen wall. Larson residence, Lena speaking. Lena was a stickler for phone manners. Never just hello, always give your place of residence and your name. It's just good manners. It was Hilda Boltwright, the church's organist and choir director. She sounded almost panicked. Lena, she said, Lena, this is Hilda, and I have some terrible news. Hilda was almost always the first to know local news. Lena, she said, Hans Stensacker died last night. Lena knew that Hans, who was in his late 80s, had been sick and had not been expected to live. Oh, said Lena, I'm so sorry. Did his son from South Dakota make it back in time to see him? I think so, Hilda said. Yes, I think he did. Hilda then explained why she was calling. Pastor called and said that the funeral was going to be on Tuesday. Immediately, Lena started calculating how big this funeral might be and what size hot dish she should prepare. The reason I'm calling, Lena, is because the family has asked the choir to sing two songs, and Pastor wants one of them to be the new Christiansen arrangement we've never sung before. And I'm taking the train to Minot after church tomorrow to meet my sister Lola, who's coming from Garrison Sunday night, so I can go with her to see her specialist Monday morning. But the train from Minot won't get back to Williston until late Monday night. Could you come to a choir rehearsal this morning? When Lena heard the part about Hilda getting back late on Monday, she automatically doubled the size of her scallop potato hot dish. Hilda had too much on her plate to do before the funeral. It wouldn't be fair to ask her to do anything but bring a jar of pickles. Yes, Hilda, I can come. What time? And do you want me to call the rest of the choir? Oh, could you? Then I can practice that new piece. Oh, thank you, Lena. Let's plan on 10 o'clock, Hilda said. Lena knew she would not be taking any books to the library that morning. Of course, said Lena. I'll start making calls. They said goodbye. She needed to call the choir, but first she had to tell Oli about Hans. Hans was older than Oli by decades. Despite their age difference, Hans and Oli had always shared a particular bond. When Oli was young and their home was quarantined when his brother got smallpox, Oli's mother sent him to stay with the Stensockers for over a month. Hans and his wife were kind of like an aunt and an uncle to Oli. And Oli and Hans also both had a passion for steam locomotives and for George Washington. And they had a running bet about who would be the first to see Mount Rushmore. When Lena broke the news to Oli, he did something that took her a bit by surprise. He quietly opened up his arms. It was an invitation. Lena stepped forward so they could just hold each other. They stood there quietly for a few moments. Hans was a good man, Oli said. He lived well. He died content. I'll miss him. Oli knew about Lena's plans for the books. I'll take the books to the library, he said. Oli, she said, what about the potatoes? They'll be here when I get back. A walk might be just the thing. I have to admit, the sight of Oli pulling that radio flyer down the street, it was easier to pull the wagon down the middle of the street than to negotiate the wagon up and down the curbs at each corner, prompted some curious looks and probably a few smiles. When Oli got to the library, he parked the wagon out front and took the box of books up the stairs. 
The little bell mounted above the door jingled as he came in. He went to the library desk with its portrait of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln above it. The library was empty. It was a beautiful morning. Adults were jumping into spring projects around the house, and any kids who were awake were jumping on bicycles. Gertie Carlson was behind the desk. Morning, Gertie, said Ole. Good morning, Ole. She saw the box in Ole's hands. Oh, are those Elsa's books from St. Paul? Lena had told Gertie about the books, and Gertie had been waiting. Yes, he said. Lena was going to bring them, but she got a call from Hilda this morning. Hans Stensacher died last night. Oh, I'm so sorry, Gertie said. She knew that Hans had been ill, so it wasn't a shock. I'll bake some rolls and make a roast for Mary this afternoon. She'll be having lots of company. It's a big family. The funeral is Tuesday morning, Ole said. Hilda wanted the choir to practice this morning, so I brought the books. Thank you, Ole. It's so nice of Elsa to remember our library. Ole was just about to say goodbye when they both heard a series of loud thumps, followed by a young boy's cry from the back stairwell. Oh, Carl, Gertie exclaimed, and she ran toward the stairs. Ole followed. There on the floor at the bottom of the stairs, amid a box and numerous scattered books and a lot of marbles, lay a young boy, about eight years old, crying. Oh, Carl, are you all right? cried Gertie as she hurried down the stairs. Ole followed close behind. When Carl saw Ole, he sat up immediately, trying to swallow his tears. I'll be all right, Grandma. Hello, Mr. Larson. Hello, Carl, said Ole, who sat down on the floor next to him. What happened? I was carrying a box of books down the stairs for Grandma, and I slipped and fell. It's all right. I'm all right. Ole saw the marbles and thought there was maybe more to the story. Just then they heard the little bell above the front door jingle upstairs. Gertie, you go upstairs, said Ole. I'll help Carl. Carl knew Ole, that is Mr. Larson, from church. Lena, Mrs. Larson, was Carl's Sunday school teacher, and it seemed that wherever Carl went, trouble soon followed. But life was hard for Carl. Three years ago, both his mother and his newborn sister had died during his sister's childbirth. Then his grandpa Carlson, Gertie's husband, had died. A few months later, his father, who was a very hard-working man, did something very much out of character. He got drunk and did something really stupid, which resulted in the Rolfson's barn and haystack and tractor being burned up and, worst of all, three cattle dying. No one got hurt, but he was sentenced to two years in the state penitentiary in Bismarck. Word was Carl's father might be home just before Christmas. Gertie, Carl's only surviving grandparent, was now his legal guardian. As Ole helped Carl retrieve the scattered marbles, he asked, So, Carl, tell me about the marbles. Well, said Carl, I was helping Grandma like I do on Saturdays. She asked me to take some old books down to the workbench where they tape up the old books. I had 20 marbles in my pocket this morning, and I just needed to double-check. So I put the box down and counted my marbles and tried to hold on to them when I picked up the books, and then some marbles fell, and then I tried to pick them up, and then everything fell, and I just fell. A fall like that can really hurt, said Ole. It took a minute or two, but they finally found the last marble. I didn't mean to cry, Mr. Larson. Big boys don't cry. Well, Carl, I'd say that if it hurts bad enough, big boys do cry. Sometimes crying is just the thing. I cried this morning myself, said Ole. Mr. Larson, did you fall down the stairs too? Ole laughed. No, Carl, I didn't fall down the stairs. But I found out this morning that a friend of mine died yesterday, so I cried a little. I'm sorry for your loss, Mr. Larson. Thank you, Carl. Whatever troubles Carl might get himself into, Ole thought, someone was teaching him good manners. They sat there for a moment in silence. Ole then said, Well, Carl, today is potato planting day at our house, so I have a job to do. But before I do, I was thinking I would walk down to F&W Woolworth and have myself an ice cream soda. If your grandma says it's okay, would you like one too? Oh, Mr. Larson, that would be grand, said Carl. 
And then he said, and maybe after that, maybe could I help you plant your potatoes? Well, let's go ask your grandma, shall we? Gertie, of course, was only too happy to say yes. Despite her insistence, Ole would not take any money for Carl's ice cream soda. When they got to Woolworths, Ole did some talking. Carl asked about how soda fountain stools spin, so Ole explained to him about ball bearings. Ole also commented about the picture of George Washington in the library and told Carl some interesting facts about Washington crossing the Delaware. But mostly, Ole listened. And Ole listened in the important way a person listens. He responded with things like, Oh, I'll bet that hurt, or that would scare me too. And he asked questions. So did that dog ever come back? When Ole and Carl finally got home, they saw Lena on her knees, having just planted three tomato plants along the west side of the garage, where they would get plenty of sun. She looked up, surprised to see Ole and Carl walking up the middle of the street. Carl was holding Ole's hand with one hand, and with the other, he was pulling the radio flyer. Well, I'll be, said Lena as she stood up. What have we here? Ole explained all that had happened that morning and that Carl was going to help him plant the potatoes. And then a puzzled look came over Ole's face. Tomatoes, Lena? Isn't it a little early for tomatoes? Oh, she said, I went by coast to coast after choir practice and they had these on sale. I'll cover them if it gets too cold, but they say they're very hearty. They're Italian cherry tomatoes. I just had to give them a try. Italian tomatoes, laughed Ole. What will they think of next? Norwegian cucumbers? Lena smiled. I'll make us some sandwiches, she said, and headed toward the house. As she got to the door, Ole called to her from the potato patch. Yes, dear, Lena said. I've been thinking, said Ole. After we pick those Italian tomatoes this fall, I think we should make a trip. I think we should go see Mount Rushmore. A trip? Ole, that's a wonderful idea. As she turned to go back into the kitchen, Lena made a mental note. She was going back to coast to coast. She needed more Italian tomatoes. Next week, we're not going to talk about Lewis and Clark, but I'm going to explain some history about Thomas Jefferson and George Washington about something they had in common. Their birthdays both got changed. When Thomas Jefferson died, his birthday was April 13th. When he was born, his birthday was April 2nd. When George Washington died, his birthday was February 22nd. When he was born, his birthday was February 11th. I'll explain why that's the case. We'll also say more about the NFL protest and likely have more news from the world of Ole and Lena. Thank you for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. I look forward to sharing with you again next week for more Hope and Heart and Home on the Range. Goodbye and God bless. <laughs> ¶¶